my business yeah. of writing teacher's name because he he had the most influence on me as a writer and and in terms of like bridging the world between okay. uh academic and real his name okay. is ross laird one of the biggest lessons that he taught us in class that no other teacher would ever teach us is that as a writer you have to be okay with the fact that you might never make money or never know when it's going to happen and just keep writing regardless of whether you will make a living uh, as a writer or not and that's what kept me going because you know as exhausted and frustrated as i am to not make a living as a writer i still enjoy the process and that's why i keep persisting on that career because i know that i can make a difference in the world if i just keep going until someone some big name takes me on and my career takes off from there who that who that will be or when i have no idea but i'm going to keep going until that happens hey there my fellow sophisticated creatives welcome to jcv art studio from the dressing room Ozzy is in the studio with me. This is episode 10. In today's podcast, I'm having a discussion with author, fiction author, Andre Grass. Andre writes poetry, and you can read his poetry on his website. He is also the author of a fiction series, writing under the pseudonym, and I want to check with this, A.G. Flitcher. Yeah, that's right. Oh, good. Good, Andre. Thank you. <laughs> the first book being Boone and Jacques Saddleton's Secret. On Amazon, in the ebook category, his series is noted under the occult or fiction category, which I kind of disagree with. I, I, I've been enjoying the novel and I'm, I'm not quite seeing that yet, um, but we'll get into that. Andre, welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. Hi, thank you for having me. Good, good. Uh, just so our listeners know, I can hear a little bit of feedback. That's not you. That's the area I live in. Uh, it was. It's been super windy here, and we lost power yesterday. So I'm just grateful I have power. <laughs> okay. Um, and also, thank you, Andre, for taking your the day off today. I that's I really appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Okay, so let's talk about book categories a little. Well, we're going to talk about book categories a little bit later. But I wanted to know on Amazon, your book is in this classification of occult horror fiction in ebooks. It's also under action and adventure. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on these different classifications? I, I did check yesterday. The occult horror, I think I, I changed that. It didn't show up. Um, but as this, this comes from one of my teachers, one of the lessons I took from him, uh, from uh, Business of Writing. He considers uh, genres to be kind of pointless, that it's really just so that book vendors and uh, commercial stores can classify their books easier so that it's easier for uh, readers to find them, whether it's online or 
in, in the physical store. So when it comes to my style of writing, I consider myself a, a genreless writer. So I don't really say, okay, I'm going to write a fantasy book and there's only going to be fantasy elements. Whatever elements I need for that story to be you know, either intriguing or progress the story forward, I will put that in. But it's not something that I'll do for all of my books. It just, it depends on what I'm uh, trying to write. I get that. I'm writing a mystery thriller yeah. and I have dead people, <laughs> I mean, like ghosts. Okay. Like, you know, the obvious dead person, but ghosts in the story. So, mm -hmm. okay. So how's the reception and the feedback being with the series? This book came out maybe a year or two ago. And uh, the first response was rather quiet. There was one person in which I was trying to get a bit of promotion going for my book. So one of my friends who started a, a publishing company um, wrote reviews for indie authors. So her business partner wanted to write one, but felt that my work was subpar and basically trashed it and gave me feedback instead of a review and suggested I get an extra editor. So that response felt a, a bit strange to me because if you're going to criticize my work for its quality rather than the story, then I, I don't really consider your <laughs> opinion uh, valid to what I'm trying to um, validate in my work. A year later, people actually said that my work was rather um, progressive in terms of how characters are written. One of my friends uh, who was gay said that the LGBTQ community would actually be very interested in this kind of uh, story because the way I characterize Boone and Jacques is very against the grain in terms of the typical urban kids that have you know a very naive and closed mindset because they don't really understand everything. So I try to make them seem not just progressive, but also not really feeding in to the typical boy behavior. That's it. When I've been reading it, because we will talk about their friendship later. You have a bachelor's degree in creative writing. Yeah. You mentioned that life experiences shape your writing. Can you elaborate on how both your creative writing degree and everyday living has made you the writer you are? Certainly. Um, you know, over time, as life kind of unfolded for me, it became interesting in good and bad ways. For example, um, when I first started working at the Greater Vancouver Zoo, one of my jobs in the maintenance department was to, uh, during the during fall, every two weeks, I had to go down and uh, tear down uh, the foundation of beaver dams to keep the water from rising too high and and keep the beavers um, within their own territory. So that was one of my first moments of, of creativity because being in that kind of strange environment and you hear all these different sounds around you and you have all these elements around you, it really colors your world and uh, on a fun aspect, but on a personal note, the more 
I guess not traumatizing, but definitely affected me is what happened in my family that made us tighter. For example, when I was eight, my father got uh, T-boned by a garbage truck. Oh my God. Yeah. So he has an artificial hip and part of his foot missing and a metal plate in one of his shins, but he can still walk. He, he made the choice when the doctors talked to him to not get a um, hip fusion, which would have put him in a wheelchair. He would rather have an artificial hip and not be able to run because he doesn't really do anything athletic because he has more of a technical job. He was able to uh, keep doing his job uh, without having to get a replacement. So I was lucky that he was alive. But my mom passed away about six years ago from uh, breast cancer. Yeah. And yeah. what was inter interesting about that um, experience is how I changed over time. Like when she first passed away, one of the decisions I made before she did, like while she's in the hospital, was to be a personal trainer. So I went to school on weekends uh, to do a fast track program to get my certification, all while thinking that she would have like at least a year uh, before she passes away, but she basically had two months. So being able to try and focus on my schooling while I'm, you know, obviously grieving, going through the stages was really challenging, but I, it was one of those experiences that really made me question my endurance emotionally and mentally and all this stuff to ask myself, what do I really, what do I really want out of life? What do I, what is my calling? For a year, I tried to be a personal trainer. I tried to make it a career, but it just didn't work. So I went back to school to finish my my bachelor's in creative writing at Kwantlen Polytechnic University. And what I really appreciated about my education is that it gave me back something that I really kind of neglected over time, which is my love of reading and books. For the longest time, I was just, you know, going down the rabbit hole of YouTube videos and not really caring about creativity. Doing that, those two and a half years of schooling especially with an ankle injury for last year where I didn't have a job that really made me rewire myself mentally and ask myself, what does this mean to me? Is it just some creative path that I want to go down or do I want to create a positive impact with my work? Is that how I want to leave a legacy behind when I, when I um, leave this earth physically? And that's why I've been so persistent about making something of myself on a creative level. So it's not just my education and life really that uh, influenced my passion for, for storytelling, but really trying to figure out how I can create that positive impact. Okay. You know, you hear words like self-growth and stuff like that, but it, it's more than that. It, it's, it's, um, finding like just finding I don't you could say finding your passion or taking your passion and running with it and, and just yeah yeah well that's very I was on the couch for a year so <laughs> I, I didn't have yeah. a choice but to think about what I'm trying to do with my life moving forward yeah and Andre I used to be a personal trainer too oh <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, okay, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> so what I like about your novel, mm -hmm. Boone and Jacques Saddleton, Saddleton's Secret, yeah. we have the two boys. Yeah. And they come from, both of them, abusive families. Mm -hmm. and, I, and that may sound weird when I say I like that, but I, I'll explain. Boone has an abusive father. His mom's not the maternal, like, mother type. They're, they're flawed characters. I think by you give them also, by coming from an abusive family, I thought you're giving them the opportunity to really grow. And um, I've worked in the prosecutor's office, and life is not, as you have also given us examples of in, from your own life, mm -hmm. Life is not a leave it to beaver episode. Yeah. Why or what was your motivation to have Boone's parents not be the the normal, happy, you know, dimples in the cheeks type of, of people? I really thought about that when I was just thinking about the, you know, bigger picture of my book. Although I'm focusing on Boone and Jacques, you know, not just character arcs, but life arc. I, I kept asking myself, well, who's influencing them to make these decisions? Who's changing them mentally? Who's changing who they are as a person? Because they, no one can really change if life just throws curveballs at you. There has to be some kind of incentive, not just through positivity or negativity, but circumstantial situations that feel difficult. And what's difficult for these characters is not being able to rely on their loved ones and adults that are always around them. Um, when I rewrote the back page, sorry, back cover blurb of the new cover of this book, um, I used the words foaming at the mouth for the adults craving uh, respect and obviously power. So when I introduce old kings and schisms uh, with these adults pitted against each other, they're so enwrapped in their greed and for, for power that they kind of forget about the children's need and, and, and safety. So because of that, having no parents and no adults to guide them through all this chaos, no one to protect them, they really have to rely on not just their quick wits, but also being dependent on one another. And that's why you become so attached to these characters because you realize that no adult can, can save them. They'll have to do it themselves, whether it, it kills them or dramatically changes their life. You can't see me, but I'm nodding my head. Yeah, we kind of give the listeners a, a summary or just a hint of what um, Boone and Jacques Saddleton's secret is about. Sure. On uh, allegor allegorically speaking, there are two levels to this. On the literal level, you see these two characters that are uncovering the magical history of their town, Saddleton, in which they have to realize that the more the sorry the closer they get to the truth of their town on why this magical history is keep kept secret the more they realize that they're in the middle of something that they <laughs> were kind of regret uh bringing up to the surface 
So that's the literal level. On the bigger picture uh, level, uh, it's really about how to survive elements that may be strange to you or just something you didn't think that you'd have to ever deal with. And that's what these characters go through is their town is rather boring until they decide to uncover the truth. And the thing about that kind of message is that obviously nothing is what it seems. You can think that you can have a plan for life, but life will throw you curveballs here and there because that's just not how life works. You can't just, you know, make a plan and then there you go, you get your job. No, it's, it doesn't work that way. I've I've been a writer for eight years. I thought that by now I'd be, you know, have, have my own place, be married and have kids, but it just doesn't work that way. Everyone's journey is different. And that's ultimately what this book is about, is a journey that is always changing. And hopefully with that kind of message, it will um, affect your life. And I hope it does. These boys, I really like them. And, uh, you know, Boone, he spends time in his basement with his friend Jacques. Yeah. Jacques is fostered by the Donnelly family, and he lives on the other side of the fence. And this one sentence just jumped out at me. Is it, if you don't mind if I read yeah, it. No worries. Go ahead. Jacques is, is thinking about what he has in common with mm-hmm. Boone. And you write, the sense of not belonging of being inside a home with a family, yet feeling as invisible as a spider web you accidentally walked into. To me, so much feeling and what Jacques was was feeling was in that sentence. And I think of the, the great partnerships that are per- portrayed in movies you know, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Sherlock Holmes and Watson, Thelma and Louise. Can you tell us why you wanted, like when you originally started writing the story, did you have in mind that you wanted the story to be about these two boys and their great friendship? Strangely, no. This is meant as a practice round for books I've always wanted to write in the future, like standalone books, because I, I don't mind. I love series, you know, because you become attached to the characters the more the story goes on. But I always found creating standalone books very challenging because you're ultimately giving yourself one chance to make readers feel something by the end of the story. Because by the end of the story, that's it. The, the story is over. But with a series, you have several chances to... Um, not just engross your your audience to to really like your characters, but give yourself multiple chances to prove that you can write a good story and keep it going. So really, this series is about me trying to challenge myself in different themes. That's why each book that I've started to write for this series is different from the next. So, for example, this book is more of a urban fantasy kind of uh, novel, where the second one is a straight up epic or Western fantasy. And so it's very environmental, um, environmentally uh, involved. And that's why this first book is really just about the people. And that's why there's so many 
subplots. And that, that has always been a challenge for me is being able to tether subplots to them, to each other and still have them focused on the, the central or focal point of the story. So that's, that's really why I wrote this series. It's not just about these boys and their friendship. It's about me seeing how can I create really meaty relationships that can be not just effective, but make you focus on the characters rather than the the adventurous part of it. Like let, let, let's say I wrote a I write a romance novel. If I just write boy loves girl and you focus on the chase, then that's all you focus on. I want to make sure that I'm able to create meaningful characters that are so unique that regardless of whether or not they end up together. Sorry, Andre, sorry, let's stop. Sorry. Andre, I'm okay. sorry. Okay, can we continue? I'm sorry, Andre. Can we please continue? Um, yeah, it's okay. I have a dog. I understand. So, <laughs> okay. I'm sure my dog will bark okay. sometime. <laughs> He'll see oh, the dog. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you were saying challenging yourself yeah. and creating meaty mm -hmm. characters and um, let, let's take uh, a famous movie for example, The Notebook. I I watched that with the first girlfriend I dated, and I obviously as a man, I'm like, hey, I don't really see see how, why this is such an impactful movie, and it's yeah. it's because I didn't quite um, feel connected to the characters. The, obviously, the story is, is interesting, but because the characters didn't really connect with me as the viewer, then I only focused on the journey that they go. So if you create meaningful characters, then the, the, the outcome doesn't matter as much as their development by the end of the story. If one of them dies or they just don't end up together, you'll still see how they grew as people. And ultimately that's what yeah. um, has a bigger impact, not just the adventure yeah. or the romance, but how they grew as a person. And I'm just, I'm thinking about your comment about challenging yourself. It's amazing what comes out during that writing mm -hmm. journey. I'm now looking into, I'm thinking about book three, listening to lots of podcasts and trying to find out information about the drug situation, you know, the drug crisis we have yeah. in BC. So, but did I think about that at all when I first started? Heck no, right? You, you, we started talking about your characters, mm -hmm. and they are really cool. Thank you. <laughs> and I have this question, and I'm wondering if you did this deliberately. Okay. So, Jacques has this horrible mm -hmm. mother, Ms. Constance Sirhein. Her name alone, when I looked at it, I took out the O N S T, and then I took out the H I N E. And I saw the word cancer. And I thought that was rather fitting. And I was wondering if you had planned that. Uh, no, it's completely different. First off, it's it's pronounced the uh, Constance Ryan. And okay. it's really just me looking at the British name Constance. And it, it on its own, it sounds kind of pompous, but it's such a generic con uh, British name that I felt it wasn't 
punk, punk, uh, not, uh, punchy enough to grab the reader's attention. So I added the word Brian because I just thought it made her sound more evil because I didn't want her to just be this typical cold mother. I wanted her to, to feel kind of powerful. And whether she she's uh, a character that stays throughout the series or not, I still want her to leave an impact on the reader. Well, she yeah. is. <laughs> Jacques is yeah. adopted by Ms. Constant, Const, Constant yeah. Ryan. There is a party, and you describe her before the party as elegant in a velvet, dark cherry red dressing gown, and her perfume burned Jacques' eyes and nostrils. And I thought, I thought of rotting fruit. And I thought it, it may like, almost like she may look nice on the outside, but it's, it's the inside that, you know, she's, she's rotten in the inside. And I was wondering if this was the image imagery you were thinking about, or were you thinking about something else? That, that's along the lines of what I was doing. I, <laughs> When when I wrote that that party chapter, really, it wasn't even it wasn't just a scene; it was a whole chapter. I wanted to create this sort of yeah. rich and pompous aura, and have all these different uh, pungent smells around these around Boone and Jacques, where they're basically kind of these little ponds being put here and there to uh, keep the adults happy, while having to endure the the really I guess, annoying uh, things they have to deal with. Like, for example, I, I don't know if you remember this, but in the beginning of, of the, the party scene, they're at the door collecting jackets that are very heavy and they're very tiny. They're not, they're not big kids. So having all of that leather and all these different textures being thrown on them before putting them on the, the coat rack, I wanted them to feel small. And having all of these... Uh, perfumes and s these really strong smells and and energy around them in their face, and it was it was my first introduction to how claustrophobic they feel, and and how alone they feel, and that's why uh, later in that chapter they're put outside, and it's because the adults had their fun, and now it's time for to eat, and they want to be left alone. Oh yeah, you have a single description totally sets the mood of this party yeah it, it's during the party when boone and jacques are told to eat out on the porch and not at the table with the guests and you write jacques and boone ate quietly as crickets and frogs sounded off like a symphony with no conductor i've grown up in a small town i knew exactly that that feeling sitting outside and hearing all of it? Uh, this was the first book where I wrote while, while trying not to be so paranoid about anything. So I really just kind of just let it happen. The only only research I really did or like interviews I did was uh, English classes in terms of old money versus new money. And then I uh, interviewed... Um, some cousins of mine in London, England, about Cockney slang. Yeah. And then I interviewed uh, someone um, 
who was a foster child. So I tried to understand that world. Besides that, I just wrote this without really thinking. I just kind of let the first draft speak for itself. And then I would re-revise just like any author would and just let it happen. But ultimately my phrasing, my language that I use here comes from my experience in writing poetry. I, I took four classes in university uh, for poetry. That's, that's another field that I work into. And that really influenced the kind of sing-song rhythm that I try to incorporate into my storytelling as much as possible. Because when you read a book, if there's no color or unique phrasing, it's just text. And that's, that's boring to me. I don't want that as a reader. I want to feel this sort of um, comfy and, and fun environment, whether it's a dramatic story or not. There has to be some kind of pleasing factor to the way that the writer uses the narrative voice to carry you through the story. Because although dialogue is very effective at moving the story forward, it won't matter to you if the narrative voice does nothing for you. The narrative voice is very important. You can have these colorful characters, but if the way you um, tell the scene is very uh, formulaic and just scene by scene, then it won't matter to you. It's, so this, that, that has to be uh, enjoy, enjoyable as well. I sometimes also think of it as like a rhythm, a rhythm yeah. for mm -hmm. the reader as the reading. Yeah. There are, like you said, different, um, so many different levels and layers to your novel. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jacques' father, Danton, it, uh -huh. like they have this party. Yeah. And He's frowning at Jacques and Boone. It's almost like, why are they even there? And uh, Jacques is like sent off to serve champagne to the guests. Yeah. And uh, the line from the mayor where he, he says to Daunton, let them get acquainted, Daunton. It's good for the city, the poor and the rich to be on the same side. And in my eyes, you are showing that awful... Um, idea of of class and because we have more money we are obviously better and we, we tolerate the lower class was this one of the um like layers messages you were also trying to get through that's that's what i picked up on that was ultimately me characterizing um the the world as like another character because if if, if i just say this character says this or they believe this, they believe that. If I don't give some kind of sense to the world that they live in, then it doesn't matter. It's just the background. The The world has to feel like a person. And I learned that from Stephen King, where in his writing, as tedious as it is, um, you understand that the world that the, that was built around these characters is part of the story as well. And that world changes with them. And that's what I also try to work on as the story progresses. Kind of flipping that around, you're talking about the world for the characters. Yeah. Your characters, I mean, Mr. I'm sorry, Ms. Haggis in mm -hmm. the boiler room scene. Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. McTotten, the principal. Mm -hmm. I love these. As Samantha the Twelfth, who calls herself Shammy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, 
um, what do you look for in a character for that character to be a part of your story? I look for what their character traits mean to to the progression of Boone and Jacques, because although they may be some small part of the story, they still have some kind of effect on Boone and Jacques' um, journey through the story. So, for example, Shami is essentially just a new friend to them and their little adventure that they're going through. But because there's a small beginning for a romance between Boone and Jacques, um, her quirks become very uh, alluring to him. So as she goes through her kind of, it's a very quiet journey for, for Shami. We don't really get to know too much about her. I mean, the little tidbits that I give of, of Shami is purposely done not to quiet her down as a character, but let her present character speak for itself so that I'm not overshadowing Boone and Jacques uh, emotional acreage as characters, but I'm still giving her meaning so that when she goes through her personal journey through the series, yes, we get to know her a little, a little bit more, but we get to know her through the, the current timeline, not her past. Because it's not that it doesn't matter, it's that it's too distracting if I do that. And any kind of characterization I give for each character is done in a way that it gives just enough time, just enough time, uh, limelight to them that makes them valuable to the story, but not so valuable that the reader gets distracted and confused on who to, to focus on. Yeah. And now, don't you find that really... I find it really cool um, with my second book. I have people saying, oh, we're looking forward to, you know, learning more about Sage's character. Okay. Because she's like you've done with Shami. She's this, um, I won't say, a, I guess a minor character. She's the sister of my heroine. So she's a minor character in the first book. But don't you find it really satisfying when a reader says that to you? I, I love Shami. I'm looking forward to seeing what more happens with Shami. Like, and it doesn't mean that they've lost focus on Boone and Jack. Okay. Yeah. What I was trying to say is that I don't know how far you've gotten into the book, but she does go through the journey all the way through. I just made sure that in the beginning, um, she's present and she does have a continuous um, part in the in in, in Boone and Jack's uh, progression as characters. But she's really, essentially, in terms of, of her meaning in the story, she's furthering Boone's um, character arc, not just in terms of romance, but what he learns from her. If I was in grade five, and I heard that a boy said that I smelled like cotton candy and cookies <laughs> as you write, oh, my God, that was adorable. <laughs> <laughs> Getting into the writing and the, like the like literally the road, I'm thinking the road map. Mm -hmm. The intrigue with this book, you have the Cronker Button Factory. Boone and Jacques join the Saddleton Truth Seekers. Yeah. Public school has a new principal, and they're only teaching the history from grades three to five. My question is to write what I think of as more of a fantasy novel. In terms of plotting, are you taking real life events? So when you're writing this, are you taking real life events or reality? 
and this is your plot. It's like on a road. But then you veer off to the left or to the right to add some of the fantasy elements. The fantasy elements, like I said, is really to make the characters feel like they really have to rely on their wit. Kind of like a series of unfortunate events where they're they're just they're by themselves trying to get through all these these difficult circumstances circumstances and even though in that series there's no fantasy elements it feels like a fantasy because the way the town is run and how the adults act is is very fantastical so mm-hmm. there that's why i and added the fantasy elements not just to say this is cool right no it's it's more it's more of a challenge that they have to go through and it's kind of like my anti-Harry Potter uh, uh, tactic, where there are magical elements around them, but they don't have any um, any magical abilities themselves. So it's another uh, hurdle for them to overcome. Okay, so I've been researching mm-hmm. steampunk. And from what I'm learning, Steampunk is not necessarily a genre. Uh, Writer's Digest magazine refers to it as a skin or a style. Victorian era class structures, implicit or explicit social critique, adventure oriented plot line. They also then say that technology and devices driven by steam power or counterweight weighted clockwork. Um, And then they say steampunk plots fall in the category of the hero's journey. Do you feel, and you can tell me if I'm totally off base, do you feel your novel has a bit of a steampunk skin in it? Uh, I don't think so, because I I read one of my friend's um, steampunk novels, and it didn't really look the same as mine. Uh, Yeah. That's why I say my series is more of an urban fantasy, because I I have a love for both Stephen King and J.K. Rowling's work, specifically Harry Potter. And I was trying to marry those two worlds, because my world that I created on an urban level is very Stephen King. People have told me that from the first book that I, that I wrote under my legal name. And it's because I like having grounded work. And that's why as this series goes on, the fantasy elements will either uh, spike up and then quiet down and basically disappear. And the reason for that is I don't want people to feel that these fantasy elements will be heavy handed and extremely powerful. I want it to just be some kind of cog in the, the, journey that they have to go through without it being the focus of the story it's just kind of there so when i started writing the third book uh it was kind of the character's youth being concluded and then once that's concluded they'll become adults and there won't really be any kind of fantasy elements it'll focus on their final kind of uh arc as a human being without the influence of fantasy elements. And I like when you said grounded work and the, the, it's almost like fantasy spikes that, that come up. Yeah. Because 
that boiler room scene, Boone is in the boiler room. Yeah. Okay, I'm I'm an adult. And that took me right back to junior high when I had to look for the janitor and I had to go into some sort of room with machinery and it just <laughs> the second book I, I wrote, uh, The Brothers Odyssey for this series, it's very fantasy focused, but my idea of fantasy elements that seem intriguing without it seeming too uh, outlandish is heavily in, uh, focused on uh, environmental change, not necessarily the magical aspect, but how uh, how it affects the character, not how interesting it looks. So let's say there's the uh, there's a tsunami scene, and the characters are trying to survive the storm. Uh, it's it's about the character's survival, not about how cool it looks on 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 paper or or if it's a movie on screen. It's about how that element challenges the character and what happens to the character once they survive it or not. Good. You are the third author I've had on the podcast yes. who has completed completed a book trailer. Your book trailer is really cool. I've watched it twice already. Um, can you explain the process involved in the creation of that book trailer? Uh, I don't know if you saw it in the description on my Instagram, but it was through Acorn Publishing. They're the ones who did it. I just I just paid them to make one. Um, okay. the thing that I like and don't like about book trailers is that if you ask someone else to do it, you hope that they encapsulate the energy and vibe of your book. And they did. So I'm happy with that. But that's something that I'm trying to do myself for this book in particular. I'm working on the book trailer for Boone and Jack Saddles in Secret. But in terms of the process when you're communicating with someone else who's helping you um, make a book trailer, you really have to make sure that you understand your own story because if they just kind of go with whatever vague information you give them, then it's not going to be the result you want. So that's why I actually did went through the process twice with them because the first trailer they gave me didn't match the tone at all. And I felt that it was very, um spotty in terms of what i'm trying to get across in a book trailer because i think of it as a movie trailer if the movie trailer doesn't show enough substance then it won't matter to you as the viewer so in terms of what but the experience it, was like i felt that it would make more sense for me to do the the trailer myself because although the found footage was effective uh i feel that if you're going to make a book trailer, it should be more text-based, where you're basically uh, using the summary or blurb you have on the back cover and using music to make you feel that kind of enjoyable rumble. So, for example, in the trailer I'm working on now, what I'm really, what I've always loved in music is drums. I love drums that have this sort of thunderous feel to it because it feels very magical and very kind of Pirates of the Caribbean. That's that's always engaging and fun. So that's what I'm trying to focus on. Okay. So Andre, if Boone and Jacques 
call you into the boiler room at uh-huh. school, what would they say to you? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why didn't you put me here? Um, <laughs> when when I wrote that scene, I was thinking about all of the dirty work I had to do at the at the zoo. Because a lot of our work, especially now with all the revamping that we're doing, is basically tearing down and gutting out all of the old structures. And it's it's really gross, but you have to do it. And having that kind of um, that feeling of having to do a dirty job, even though you don't want to, because either you're being paid to do it or you have no choice. I wanted that feeling to come across. So if they met me in the boiler room, that would be the question. Why do I have to do this? Why is this the punishment you're giving me? Couldn't you give me something else? Yeah. I'll, I'll keep about like you're serving champagne to snobs. <laughs> yeah. Andre, is there anything you would like to add? And and where can listeners find you? Oh, okay. Like on the socials yeah. and all that. Uh, I have a Facebook page, uh, AG Flitcher. Same goes for Twitter. Uh, Instagram is at great coffee equals focus, which everyone enjoys that name. You can read my poetry. And sometimes I promote my books on there on uh, WordPress at AG Fletcher as well. That's it for, for, for digital links. But if you need to email me, what I try to do to really be personal with people is on my Facebook page, there is my personal email. So if someone has an issue with my book and they want to talk about it with me. I have no issue with that. I try not to, to offend people. If someone did feel offended by my book, then I would explain to them uh, what I meant by whatever they were offended by, you know, because when, when you read a book, um, you will find something that you don't like that you will feel is offensive because we're, we're in a very uh, hypersensitive generation. And it's not that people find everything offensive. It's more so there's such a frontier justice online that um, it becomes very difficult for creators to not be offensive. They have to be aware of the fact that they're going to offend someone regardless of how careful they are. You can have what's called a um, sensitivity writer helping you to avoid any kind of uh, controversy, but to me that's kind of useless that that misses the point of writing it's writing is about like stephen king said if you're going to write be true to yourself and write the truth that's what matters is writing the truth your truth if you do that regardless of how people feel about your work you'll do fine well thank you so much andre i really enjoyed our conversation and i'm really enjoying your novel and uh I, I really do would like you to come back on on yeah, here of course. Um, maybe in in September and, and we can continue, you know, our discussion and book three, you said will be coming out. Uh, book three will probably be out by mid fall next year. OK, well, I will by then have caught up with book two and we can talk about book two yeah, if you want. That sounds good to me. OK, bye, bye. Andre.